I was scared to death to get up on that stage. And once I got up there and I started talking about what I knew, explaining sales tax and explaining how it applied to the business, I was completely at ease. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, the CPA and your host for the show. Well, we've had a few sales tax professionals on our program before, but not too many given that we've had over 200 episodes and definitely not one that was so intensely focused on training as our guest is for today. Diane Yetter is joining us and she is the founder, CEO, and self-dubbed original sales tax nerd at the Sales Tax Institute, a training organization that specializes in sales tax training. Diane got into the field by simply trying to automate a few things in her early career That led her into the taxation area and ultimately turned her into quite the subject matter expert in the area of state and local sales tax. Fast forward to today, and she's been in business now over 25 years. She's worked on innumerable implementations and training sessions in the field of sales tax, and she has a thriving business. She definitely has become a leader in the field. If you aspire to work in the corporate tax area, or maybe specifically in sales tax, or even just fully develop a niche in your own business, you're really going to enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy and learn something from this episode, please follow us on LinkedIn. You can just search for Where Accountants Go. You'll see all our podcast posts there, plus occasionally some special offers on the courses that we teach. And as always, if there's anything that I can do for you in your own career or for accounting organizations you're involved in, please reach out to me as well. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. You're really going to enjoy this episode. Here's Diane Yetter. Well, hello, Diane. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. Well, for the audience, as I've mentioned, we get our guests for shows in a variety of ways. Some are referred by the audience. Thank you very much. (laughs) Some are also referred by other guests, which is another thank you. And sometimes I just see something interesting online and I contact the person to see if they would come share their experience with us for everyone to learn from. Today, we have Diane Yetter, and she works in the sales tax arena, and she's definitely a subject matter expert. We've touched on sales tax as a career a few times on the show, but not much given that we've had over 200 episodes. When I came across Diane online, I couldn't help but see if she would come on the program and share her story with us. Like I mentioned, she's definitely a subject matter expert, and when I found out how she got into the field, actually, it was definitely something I couldn't pass up. Well, Diane, before we get to exactly what your business looks like now, let's make sure we cover your overall journey. What led you to decide on accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? That's a great question, Mark, and I'm going to sound really like a nerd here. My dad was an accountant, and I wanted to be like dad. And when we were little, He actually started his career with Arthur Anderson and worked in some other industry jobs. But accounting often requires working on the weekend. And he would take us to work with him on the weekends. And at the time, I had three other sisters. I now have a brother. So there's five of us. So he would take the four of us girls, sometimes all, sometimes some of us, to the office. I always wanted to go when he gave us that opportunity. And 
My sisters would do things like run around in just the big open space so they could run around and do some things. Or maybe they would do play on the typewriters back in the day when we had typewriters (laughs) in offices and the copy machine and things like that. And I was like drawn to the calculators and to numbers and all of those sorts of things. And so I think that is really what initially drew me to accounting from the time, I don't know, we probably started doing that when I was maybe seven or eight years old. So that was always kind of my direction of what I wanted to do. Ten keys are sort of interesting at that age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they are. They are. <laughs> that is too funny. Too funny. Well, one of the things about your story that we discussed in the pre-show call, you know, the scheduling call was you had some challenges in school. I don't remember what the nature of them was, but I remember that somehow that worked to eventually getting you into the arena that you're in now. And obviously that's worked out very well. Tell us about your college experience, how you paid for school, what effect that had on you at the time and and what that that whole time period for you was like. Sure. So as I just said, I'm one of five kids, so money was tight, and I had to pay my own way through college. And so that meant that I had to work while I was going to school. But certainly back then, it was not as common to take five years to finish a degree. You know, it was four years. And so I was taking a pretty heavy workload and working probably 25 to 35 hours a week. And I was a really top student in high school, and I think I just bit off more than I could chew Mm. and had some challenges. And particularly the first couple of years, you're taking general types of studies. I'm not a big science person. You know, you had to take science and some of those sorts of classes, and I didn't have the greatest grades. And when you, you know, the way GPAs are calculated, a bad couple of semesters is hard to kind of dig yourself out of. And that is exactly what happened. And so although I graduated in four years with a double degree, I have a bachelor's in accounting and business administration. So it is a a double major. And I finished in four years working the number of hours that I did. And I graduated college in, I'll date myself here, 1985, which was not the best time to get a job. There have certainly been other years that have been harder to come out and try to get a job. And I did not have a job when I graduated. And so I had a lot of career decisions to make and what did I want to do? I started sitting for the CPA exam. I actually sat for the exam before I graduated. That was back when exams were only given twice a year. So I sat the first time May of my senior year. So that was a goal. I really wanted to get the CPA and so trying to figure out what to do. So I decided, well, I didn't get a job. I'll apply for grad school. And I had the opportunity since I had applied for grad school, the company where my dad worked had a internship program that was available for employees' children. And I had done one internship the summer after my freshman year. Ironically, we just talked about 10 key calculators. My first job, my first summer in that internship program, I was a calculator operator. So for eight hours a day, I was on a 10 key running numbers. (laughs) That's what we did because we didn't have computers back then. And so we were totaling spreadsheets, verifying timesheets, anything that had to be added up anywhere in the company came to that department. And that's what I did. So I had one summer of eligibility left. They gave you two summers that you could do it. So I was able to get a position in the tax department, ironically. And so I had this internship in the tax department and I was 
given the opportunity, again, I'll date myself, to learn Lotus 123. And in doing that, I was able to actually create some programs which were really macro-driven applications within Lotus, to do two things. One, part of my job as the intern was to actually organize and keep things filed and up-to-date in the tax library. And nobody could ever find anything. And I said, I'm going to create a lookup type of tool in Lotus where you could type in what you're looking for and it would tell you what shelf it was on. So I did that and everybody loved it. Another thing that we were challenged with is the company was a utility company. And as such, we had exemption certificates from our customers that might not be subject to tax on their electric bill. And we have had to keep track of those because they expired. And so I created a program that tracked all of the exemption certificates and would generate letters. This is pre-email time. So it generated letters on the frequency that we needed to send them out to request those updated certificates. So I really learned a lot about Lotus 123 and created these programs and it was great. And had applied to a couple different schools to go and get my master's. And due to a variety of different things, it just didn't work out. And so the summer was coming to an end. And I went to the company and said, I'm not going to have a job or I'm not going to go to school. This was contingent upon me going to school. So if you want, I'll go ahead and resign. And they said, no, 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 finish out the summer. Well, the end of the summer came. And then they said, you know what? We can't hire you permanent because the company had a nepotism program because my dad worked there, they couldn't hire me full-time, but they could hire me as a temporary full-time person. So I got that position and was working in the tax department there. I loved my tax class in school, but I also loved my auditing class. So this was an interesting opportunity. I got to keep doing different things, learning computers. And then in probably October, I got a call for a job interview. And when I was in college, I had applied to the Department of Revenue in Kansas to work for them and hadn't gotten a call back or anything and all of a sudden got this call for an interview. So I went to interview with the Department of Revenue and got hired as a sales tax auditor. So although I had kind of done some things tangentially with sales tax at the utility company over the internship in those couple of months that I was working full-time, never would have thought about sales tax, nothing we learned in school, but it was a great opportunity to go and work for the Department of Revenue. So that's really how I got into sales tax is it was honestly the only job offer I got after graduation. I had had to move home and my parents said, you got a job offer, you're taking it. So that is how I ended up at the Department of Revenue as a sales tax auditor. Wow. Oh my gosh. There's so much I'd like to ask you about here. It's interesting how little project like that can give you just a little bit of knowledge that that you end up really just morphing into what Mm -hmm. becomes a career. On the side, actually, I've never heard the title calculator operator. And yeah, it makes me want to have a second podcast with you about your thoughts on whether or not artificial intelligence will get rid of accounting jobs. (laughs) You know, since that one doesn't... I I, I can give you the short answer to that. No. Okay. No. Okay. (laughs) I believe the exact same thing, but I was just curious since uh, Mm -hmm. that title probably isn't there anymore. (laughs) I always tell people it's going to get rid of the jobs that we don't like anyway. Is is really... (laughs) Really, the way the way it's going to go, not the stuff we like. Right. To so, so. Right. I'm sorry, I digress a little bit. So, how long were you with the Department of Revenue there? I was with them for almost two and a half years. Oh, okay, okay, all right. How did you like the position of being a sales tax auditor? I loved it. Hmm. Okay. Which you probably don't hear a whole lot of people say that, but here's why I loved it. It was very independent. 
I had a couple of months of training with a senior auditor, but then I was out on my own. COVID has been a very different experience for everyone. For me, the biggest thing is the lack of travel from my very first job. In that job, I left my house Monday morning and was out of town. Usually, it was rare that I was in Topeka doing local audits, out of town, and I came back on Friday every week. So from the age of 21, 22 years old, I have traveled and out on your own. I didn't have anybody with me. As I became more senior and I would go to more complex audits, I might have a junior auditor with me. If we went out of state, which I was lucky to have to go to Chicago a lot, I would bring another person with me, either a peer or a junior auditor or two, depending upon the nature of the projects that we were working on. And so having to figure out how to keep yourself busy, how to resolve issues, how to deal with people that didn't want to have to talk to you. So if you're going in in an adversarial position, which you always are as an auditor, how do you get people to treat you with human decency in some cases? And so it really taught me great communication skills, time management skills, project management skills. It taught me how to be incredibly curious about everything because every business that I went into was different. They had different accounting systems. They had different products that they sold, different people that you had to deal with. So you had to figure a lot of things out. So it really, I think, escalated my learning, not just in sales tax, but in business and in relationships and in managing being a worker in the world, that it just really puts you in that incredible position. When I started, we did handwritten work papers. You had exceptions, you had errors that you found, you wrote everything down on an eight-column pad. And that is how we did audits. This is where I think there's fate in everything that we do. So those Lotus things I told you I did in the internship, because the company I worked for was the utility company, they're one of the largest taxpayers in the state of Kansas. So they knew the audit director very well. And they had been sad to see me leave and had just raved to my new boss at the Department of Revenue about what I had done and the technology and what I could do. And so probably about a year into my term at the Department of Revenue, it became time to try to introduce computers and figure out how to automate some of these audits. And although I was only a one-year auditor and certainly plenty of other auditors senior to me, I got tapped to be the person to develop the automated work paper program for the Department of Revenue. So I took what I had learned at the utility company and developed the computerized audit work paper program and then figured out what computers we wanted to buy. We had little bitty inkjet printers. I had to find a bag that we could carry them in. And then most importantly, which really kind of started out my real deep desire in training is I was responsible for training all the auditors on how to do their audits using the new system that I had developed. Wow, that is a lot of responsibility for for that point in your career. <laughs> yes. And it's where I really started getting into tax technology. Today, you hear the phrase, oh, I'm a tax technologist. Well, I was a tax technologist before anybody knew that there was such a thing called tax technology. So I've been doing tax technology since about 1986. Okay. Okay. I'm curious. I didn't know your father had worked at Arthur Anderson, and mm -hmm. I know you worked a substantial period of time at Arthur mm -hmm. Anderson. I guess, take us forward. At what point did you end up going to work <laughs> at Arthur Anderson, and how did you get on there? So 
at the Department of Revenue, as I progressed in my experience, and then also because I was doing this computerized system to really kind of flush out how it was going to work, I was assigned to some very large case audits. And I was assigned, I said I got to come to Chicago quite frequently, and I was able to do that. And I came to Chicago on an audit for the Quaker Oats Company. And they liked what they saw. One of my philosophies in doing my audits, even though you're often going in in a very adversarial role, was I was there not to get the most amount of money for the state, but to get the right amount of money for the state. So if that meant that there were refunds, I processed those refunds for the taxpayer. If it meant that they needed help, I needed to educate them, that is what I did. I had many taxpayers calling me after I had been out to see them. Hey, Diane, we're doing something. Can you tell us what should we be doing for tax reasons for this? And I think Quakers saw that in me. And so while I was there doing the audit, they had lost their sales tax person and they asked me if I was interested in the job. And I said, I can't talk to you while the audit's going on. Once we're done with the audit, we can talk. Well, they got the audit done very, very quickly so that they could talk to me. And that is how I got up to Chicago. So I came to Quaker in early 1988. And it was at about that time later that year that the accounting firm started recognizing the need to start the state tax practices within their firms. Before that, there was no real state tax professionals within the accounting firms. And I was pursued by a regional firm here in Chicago and was made an offer. And it was a great opportunity to go in kind of at the ground floor, starting this all out. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And so I went in and I resigned from Quaker Oats. And the VP of tax said, I want to take you to lunch. I want to find out why you're leaving because they really liked me. And I told him this opportunity is just too great to pass up. And I just really want to go do that. I had, at this point, I had passed the CPA exam. So I was a CPA. I was the only CPA in the state tax group at Quaker Oats. And he said, those are all great reasons. But you shouldn't go there. And I said, well, why? And he said, because I think you should go to Arthur Anderson. And Anderson was their auditor. As I said, my dad worked there. It had always been my dream to work there. It was the preeminent firm. And he said, would you be interested in Arthur Anderson? Of course, I almost fell off my chair because it had been my dream job. And I said, of course. And he said, all right, let me make a call. And I think it was one or two days later, I had an interview over at Arthur Anderson and received an offer at the end of the interview before I even walked out. And two weeks later, I was working at Arthur Anderson. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's amazing how that all comes together. Wow. It, it is. And I had great opportunities at Quaker. When I came in, I was able to work. So to kind of bring my tax technology a little bit further along, I was able to work with the IT department and the procurement department and actually helped develop and designed the IT people actually did the building but a use tax accrual system for fixed assets because that was all very manual. And I was able to come up with a system to do that that just really worked great. I also w developed a training manual and we had a training session. We brought in all of the accounts payable, all the procurement, all the engineers, all the controllers from all the plants around the country, brought them into Chicago for a day-long training session. At this point, I think I was 24, maybe 25 years old oh and gosh. put on, I was responsible for teaching about six and a half out of the eight hours of content that we taught that day in front of, I don't know, 100, 120 people we had come in. I was 
scared to death to get up on that stage. And once I got up there and I started talking about what I knew and explaining sales tax and explaining how it applied to the business, I was completely at ease. And people came up to my secretary and to my boss saying, gosh, is Diane a professional speaker? And they said, nope. And they said she was amazing. And so I think that job really taught me or helped me refine two passions that I've developed throughout the rest of my career, and that is the tax technology. I loved going in, even starting back at the utility company, designing those Lotus programs. And so I have been involved in tax technology my entire career and teaching, and I loved doing that, and I have been able to bring that throughout my entire career too. Okay. I'm curious. It sounds like you were having a really good time (laughs) during that part at Arthur Anderson. And you were there between seven and eight years. Is that? Yeah, about seven and a half years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. What caused you to finally decide that that you were going to move on and start your own thing? Or was that the same decision all in one? Or did that happen in steps? Or how did that transition occur? Well, a couple of things that were really instrumental in my time at Arthur Anderson were probably three main things. The first was I was named to the what they called the firm-wide specialty team. So different industries or practice areas had these teams that were made up of typically between 10 and 20 people from around the firm, which could be depending upon, because this was sales tax, it was just domestic, the U.S. firm. And so I was on that team, I think there were 10 to 15 of us, that that really kind of set the direction of the firms, what services we were going to offer, what training we were going to present to our staff, and really what was the direction of the firm, plus being the top technicians. So when there was a thorny issue that any office had, they would elevate it up to us. We would kind of look at it and help flush out what the issues are and how we should go about doing it and potentially get the local office people involved. So if it was a Nebraska issue, we would find somebody in our Omaha office that could help work with us on that. So that was one thing that I was very honored to be appointed to. The other thing that I did was early on, I was selected to be on the state and local education task force. So I was the sales tax representative that helped decide the direction of the training in sales tax for the entire firm, and then also was instrumental in creating the content and the training materials as well as delivering it. So that was something that I had the opportunity to actually develop the next generation of sales tax professionals within the firm. The third thing was with my technology interest and background, I was involved in creating some different programs and applications and products, so to speak, services that we offered. So I helped develop the reverse audit, which is a refund claim project and how we did that. And again, I built a bunch of things within, I can't remember if we were still on Lotus or if we had moved to Excel at that point and how we used those technology tools to do that. And back in those days, there were really only two sales tax software companies, Vertex and Taxware, which is now Sovos. And I was involved and had been involved with Vertex from the time, if I really look back, I audited companies when I was at Kansas that used Vertex databases. And then I looked at them for compliance software when I was at Quaker Oats and then worked with them on behalf of our clients when I was at Arthur Anderson, figuring out the tools. So fast forward to about 1995, I'm still at Anderson. This is five years pre-Y2K, our 
big nobody knew what was going to happen and all the systems <laughs> were being replaced because nobody knew if we were going to crash when we had to turn over to double zero. And what that meant in the sales tax space was people's companies' billing systems that were mainframe, custom-written programs were being replaced with canned programs like SAP and Oracle. And SAP and Oracle don't have the proper infrastructure to help do U.S. sales taxes with much ease. And so the Vertex and Taxware business was exploding with people needing to implement and, and get the sales tax systems integrated with these new billing systems. And Vertex started a program. They went out to three accounting firms. It was Arthur Anderson, Price Waterhouse before it was PwC, and Ernst & Young and asked us to help them train their customers because they just didn't have enough capacity internally to train their customers. So I was the lead person from Arthur Anderson on that initiative. And so I went and got trained on how to be a trainer and learned the software much more in depth. And then I was in the classroom and how they did that was they'd have a Vertex person and a accounting firm person doing the teaching. So we team taught. And initially, they were just having us teach a couple of sections that were pretty basic. And I was like, this is boring. I want to teach more stuff. I want to teach the meat. I want to really help clients understand how to apply this in their business. So I got certified to teach the entire class. And we taught three different classes at the time, if I remember right. So I'm in the classroom. And of course, what Anderson wanted to have happen was the customers that were in the classroom said, oh, gosh, Diane, sounds like you really know what you're talking about. Can you help us implement this? <laughs> so we started doing implementations, and I saw a need to have processes developed. So I went to my boss, and I said, look, I think this is a great opportunity. At this point, I had been there for about seven years, and expanding in my career, growing in my career, certainly on partner track, and I said, let me develop this as a new practice line. Give me a couple of months to figure out what kind of training we need, what kind of people we need, how we'd market this, what are any legal issues, contract issues. Let me kind of take a couple months and figure this out, and then we'll launch it as a practice line. And they said, hmm, let us think about that. They came back to me. Actually, I went back to them because I didn't hear back from them. And they said, yeah, we really don't think that's a good direction to go. This is 1996 now. And hmm. so I said, well, I think it is. So before I said that, I kind of went away and took their what they had said and talked to some friends of mine that had started their own firms, not doing anything in sales tax at all. I'm sorry, not doing anything in technology. They were definitely doing things in sales tax. And I said, what do you think? Do you think I could actually start a business doing this? And they said, totally. So I went back to my partner and I said, well, I think this is where it is going. So here's my letter of resignation. And they were like, what? Because I mean, everything I was involved in, everybody knew Arthur Anderson was my passion, my history with my dad. And everybody thought I had Anderson blood in me. And so people were shocked that I was leaving. But I did. And I went out on my own and Vertex had approached me to come work with them. I didn't want to do that. And they said, well, we don't want to lose you as a trainer. So how about if we hire you as a contract trainer? And I said, great, because you go out on your own, you got to build a book of business. I now had guaranteed work. I had two weeks a month guaranteed to teach. It wasn't at a very high rate, but it covered the mortgage. And I was then in the classroom with the opportunity to get clients. And that's exactly what happened. So I started my business 25 years ago and 
in August. And by December, I had our first clients helping them implement Vertex, and I haven't looked back. Wow. Thanks for addressing how you got the first business, because I was curious. When you leave a big name company, sometimes people have a tendency to think they're going to get exactly the same business as they have with the big name company, and, and it doesn't right. always work that way. So yeah, that exactly. was interesting. Okay. So by December and that first contract, I mean, from then on, were you pretty much as busy as you wanted to be? For the most part, there were certainly ups and downs. One of the things that when I started my firm, I've kind of given you a little bit of a story about education and training and how important that was to me. Back at that time, really the only organization that had training available for sales tax was the Institute. Today, it's Institute of Professionals in Taxation, IPT. And the only way you could attend that training is if you were a member. Well, there's a lot of businesses that need sales tax training that don't have an in-house sales tax professional. It's often the controller or the general accountant or the AR person or the AP person that might have responsibility for it. And there were some things through organizations like Lorman that would have some training, but nothing that was really substantial training that anybody that wanted to go could do. And I just have such a passion for learning and education that that was something that was part of my business plan. And I said, I'm going to start a sales tax training business. And so that was the impetus behind the Sales Tax Institute. And so that was part of my initial business. I started in August of 96. We taught our first class in spring of 97. And so we've been doing that for now 24 years. And so there certainly have been over the years ebbs and flows with the business. Certainly after 9-11, there were some issues in the 2008 recession, probably actually a little bit earlier for us. So there have certainly been times where it has, has gone down a little bit. There were scary times. There were times of complete joy and excitement and projects that would be a dream for anybody that could do it. And even more so when you're a company of two or three people to be working with some of the largest companies in the world that trusted us to handle all of their sales tax automation. So the work with Vertex at the beginning really is what put me on a path of being known as a tax technologist. So back then, none of the firms had tax technologists. None of them had had practices doing what I was out doing. There was one other small firm that worked with Vertex at the time. And so it was really just the two of us that were out there doing it. And so what that meant was we got business from Fortune 10 companies which to be a little bitty firm of, at at that time, it was me and one other person. We were doing implementations for General Motors, Boeing, waste management (laughs) as a company of two people initially and gradually growing and having them trust us with things that we had never done before. But they trusted us because they trusted me and they knew that I wouldn't do something I wasn't qualified to do, but they also gave us the support to their people, to their internal people that we needed to bring in experts when we needed it. We partnered with Vertex. We partnered with Sabrix back at the time. It's now owned by Thomson Reuters. We've been partners. So I've been a partner of Vertex from before Vertex really had partners. 
Saybrooks, I became a partner in, I think it was 2000. So been partners with them and up through Thomson Reuters. We've been a partner of Avalara since 2012. So I'm known and get asked to speak a lot on tax technology, partially, I think, because I have the history of where it was and and how far it's come. So it's been a very interesting experience in the tax technology space and just seeing what has changed from when it was a mainframe that we had to deal with to now you've got sales tax systems that can integrate and run on your cell phone, which just can boggle your mind as to what is possible comparing to what I started with way back then. So what does your business look like these days, I guess, from an employee standpoint and also from a mix of business standpoint, Mm -hmm. you know, training versus automation or not, excuse me, training versus implementation, et cetera, et cetera. What does it look like? So back in 2010, we had grown to 12 people. We were doing amazing work. We were busy as all get out. And for completely personal reasons, my mom passed away very unexpectedly. I realized that I wasn't having the fun. I wasn't loving it. I love working with clients. I love doing the teaching. I love getting in and figuring out solutions. Back, I said, one of the things at the Department of Revenue that it taught me was curiosity. And that has stayed with me through my entire career. And I had lost that. And I was working with a great business advisor and we talked through a lot of different options. We were doing great. We had great work going on. And I just said, you know what? I need to make a change. So I actually partnered with a firm that hired my people and we transitioned all of our really big implementation projects over to that firm. And I kept my business. I never sold my business. There's a lot of misconception out there. I never sold my business. I kept one person on my team who was my admin person. And the the goal at that point was to really focus on the training, which is where I really felt I needed to kind of rebuild my passion for everything. And that was going to be great. I had a little bit more visibility in the industry, something I have been very lucky with my entire history of our firm. I've never made a cold call in my life. And we just get enough inbound business. And so we were getting all of those inbound inquiries still. And so I would refer them over. I would help close the deals. And then my old team that was now working for this firm took it over. If the client wanted me to be involved from a strategy perspective, I could do that. But the actual nuts and bolts of doing an implementation, they would do. There were some clients that were just tax policy types of clients. I kept those and did that little bit of work. Well, unfortunately, that firm had some issues. And it went out of business uh, less than a year later, was bought by one of the bigger firms. They didn't want to have the same sort of relationship. So in 2011, mid-year, I started kind of rebuilding what I was going to do. And so we have morphed and changed a number of different ways over the last 10, 11 years. We have grown our training business. So back in 2010, our training, our sales tax institute revenue was maybe 5% of our business. Today, it's about 40% of our business. So we have significantly grown the training. We added webinars in 2012, long before most people were doing webinars. And just last year, we launched a membership community. So about Two years ago now, we launched our brand. I'm not sure what we would call it, but I am now the sales tax nerd. And so we created this concept, I guess is what I can call it, 
you know, a sales tax nerd and it has taken off like you would not believe. And what we have done with that is we have created a community. It's a paid membership community that people can join and it is where sales tax professionals can gather They can share learning. They can ask for questions. We have content. We have a platform that they can interact with. We have different sorts of, obviously, right now, virtual events. Before COVID, when we would be out at conferences, we would do nerd meetups and have lunches or happy hours or different sorts of things like that so people could meet each other. And that has been amazing. So that now takes up a good amount of our time. We are doing implementations still. We're not doing the really large implementations like we used to just because I don't have the infrastructure team for that. But what we are doing is we are, particularly after the Wayfair decision in 2018, the mix of our clients are now predominantly e-commerce businesses and a little bit smaller businesses that we're working often with the CEO. And I find that incredibly rewarding. I'm able to make a difference in a company's viability with helping them manage their sales tax. We have helped people that are looking to an exit strategy and helping them get their sales tax cleaned up that they didn't realize that they had. We're working with getting people registered. We're doing a lot of work with some of the smaller platforms, whether it's Vertex Cloud, Avalara, TaxJar. We're working with some of those companies. We still do have some clients that we do implementations to a larger line type of Vertex O-Series or Thompson Reuters. So we still do those. We just don't do them to the extent that we did 15 years ago. But we are now a team of six, which two of those people are actually marketing people. So that kind of gives you an idea that our pivot to do more of the training and more of the education. We have a lot of free resources on our website, salestechinstitute.com. And we are part of what I love about what I do is I am in service to people and I am a resource to people and we help people understand what they need to do to be successful in their business, which requires them to be successful with sales tax. Well, I have forgotten this until you just said it. The marketing is working. You were very gracious and I had to reschedule once and you were very gracious about that. So, you know, consequently, we scheduled this a while back. I forgot, but that's what it was that I saw, the original sales tax nerd. That's what what I noticed the first time. And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, that's interesting. I I need to see who Diane Yetter is. So, wow, that's some good branding. That is really some good branding. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I have a great marketing team. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Very well done. You know, but we're growing. We were interviewing an intern, a tax intern this morning, and we are getting ready. So depending upon when this posts, I think we will have it posted by then, but we are hosting a position for somebody with about two to four years of experience to join our team. So business has exploded. We were not at all adversely, thank God, impacted by COVID. We continued to grow to service our clients. Our training, we do have two classes that we do live in person through Sales Tax Institute. Those obviously we had to convert to virtual. Our first class was three and a half weeks because it was the third week in April. So with everything (laughs) shutting down the end of March last year, we had to figure out how to do that. We lost some people, but we still held the class with a respectable number of people. We will be virtual again in 2021. And our numbers are looking great. And we changed it from how we did it last year. We're excited about what we're doing. We're evaluating different platforms. We're trying different sorts of things for engagement. 
And we've been a remote business for 10 years. So I closed down my office in 2010 when I made that business structure change. So we've been remote for 11 years now, and we know how to do it, and we've been successful at doing it. We have employees in different states. And it gives you different opportunities to think about how to work, how to engage, how to build a culture. And there's ways that you can do it with a remote workforce. And I think we've been successful in doing that. Wonderful. Well, I want to be respectful of your time because I told you we'd get off the phone within an hour from when we actually started. I do have three questions I end every show with, so we probably better get to those. The first one's usually the easier one. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? I've been trying to figure out how I rank what has been the proudest moment. I think starting my business is certainly right up there, but knowing I'm going to celebrate my 25th year Hmm. This summer and last year, I was named Woman Business Owner of the Year for the National Association of Women Business Owners in Chicago, and that was pretty proud. Wow. So you sound like you're cheering up a little bit. I take it there were... I am. (laughs) A few times during that 25 years, weren't sure you'd make it this far, huh? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think we all go through that. Congratulations. That is wonderful. Thank you. Well, second question, or really more of a request, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about that, the better, because that's how everyone learns from these. I think one of the hardest lessons I learned was fairly early in the business. And I was a little bit too trusting. And it was a systems implementation project. And I actually brought in a programmer because we had to build the interface because there wasn't a standard interface between Vertex and their billing system. And I thought I had asked all the right questions and had the project plan and everything laid out. And in systems, you typically have like a development environment, a test environment, and a production environment. So we obviously built it in the test environment, I'm sorry, in the development environment, and then we brought it to the test environment. And that's where we did all of our testing. Everything worked. Everything was going great. And we went to bring it live. And when you, back then, you did go lives over the weekend. And so we got there and we started it on Saturday, finished it on Sunday. And as we arrived on Saturday, they said, we kind of went through, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move from the test environment. We're going to move to production. And they said, oh, wait a minute, there's another environment there called the quality environment. And I said, this is the first we're hearing about it. What is that? And they said, oh, it's just, it's a replication of the production environment. And we take it through just to make sure because the test environment sometimes hasn't got all the same things in the production environment. So I said, okay, so that should work fine. They're like, yeah. I said, do we need to do testing in that? They said, no, 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 it should be exactly the same. We'll just bring it through. And the way that system worked is it kind of Think of it as like a drag up. So we did that. We didn't test anything in that quality environment, brought it up to production. And because of that extra step, we finished at like, I don't know, three in the morning, Monday morning, went back to the hotel, get a couple of hours of sleep, shower, come back in. We get there at like 830 in the morning and it had crashed and everybody was like, what did you do? And we're like, we don't know. So we're trying to dig into it. I'm there with the programmer. One of my other employees was at their other primary location in North or South Carolina. We're like the three of us strategizing, trying to figure out what to do. This is probably 1998, maybe. 
no video calls, phone calls, no cell phones, and couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. We're only supposed to be on site for two days. We ended up being there all week. At some point, we had to go buy clothes. They were bringing in breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We were there like 20 hours a day, couldn't figure it out. Finally, they said, just leave. And I'm not somebody that gives up. And we left. And about two weeks later, we found out that what had happened was they had installed an inventory management system in production, and it didn't work, and it crashed the system. And they removed it from the production environment, but never removed it from this quality environment. And so when we pulled it up through the quality environment to the production environment, it brought some of those bad things that didn't work up into there. And because the sales tax system is so intertwined with so many things related to inventory, it brought some of that up. So they ended up fixing it, but still blaming us. And in fact, refused to pay us about $80,000 of our fees. So it was a very expensive lesson. And the lesson that I learned was ask every question more than once and make sure you document it. And then we modified our engagement contracts to put extra protections in. It was a very expensive, hard lesson to learn financially, but also emotionally and professionally that it made me question, can I really do this? I'm not a tech person. I'm an accountant. I've learned tech through doing, but that was probably the hard lesson. Wow. I was curious if they still held you responsible for that. I'm I'm glad you, yeah, because that's really hard lesson. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. my gosh. My gosh. Well, last question, then we'll go ahead and close it down. What has been the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I think it's be true to yourself. As a consultant, as an advisor, you feel like you have to walk the middle line. And I think today, particularly more recently in the last few years, you need to be true to yourself. You need to act externally the way you are internally. And you have to find how to be congruent with yourself because if you can't live your values in what you do in your job, then you're in the wrong job. And over my entire career, I've always said, if you are not happy with what you're doing, you're not in the right place. And so I've had that all along and I've said that to employees over the years. But recently I got this advice of be congruent with who you are and live your values and everything will work out. And you know what? It has. Last year with COVID, with the civil unrest, with everything else, we came out with public positions about what our beliefs are as a firm. And I am blessed that I have a team that we all share the same values. And there's blog posts out there. We have started a book club that we read a book about every two months and we write a blog about it. And we did books on racism. We've done books on leadership and teams and communication. Our next blog post on listening to feedback uh, will be coming out. And you know what? The feedback from it, Mark, has been unbelievable. We, of course, had some people say, I thought you were sales tax. Why are you talking about these sorts of things, the importance of equity and inclusion and what is wrong with pay inequality between men and women and things like that? And I said, it's all related. If we are not living our values and living what we believe in and demonstrating that in what we do, you're not going to be happy. And if you're not happy, why are you doing what you're doing? So I think that's the best piece of advice I'd ever received. 
That really is beautiful. It is very easy, and I don't think people realize this, but there are a lot of people, or it's not easy to realize, I guess, but it's very easy when you're self-employed, you have your own business, to be very wrapped up in what the customers think and keeping them happy and what the employees think and keeping them happy, that you can lose yourself in the process. And and until you're in that spot, I, I don't think people realize that. So that's, wow. That really is wonderful advice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And you know what? The last year, as hard as it's been, it has actually made it so much easier to be very public, not just on those sorts of issues, but even on sales tax positions. Early on, you didn't take a position on whether or not you agreed with one position or another because you had clients on both sides of the the issue. Today, it's pretty clear what I stand for and what my thoughts are on sales tax. And people that don't believe in that don't hire us. And you know what? That's okay. That's right. That's right. You have a very inspirational story, Diane. I I appreciate you sharing all the twists and turns with us because it is amazing how your career has developed. If people want to find out more about you or your company, what's the best place to look online? So the best place would be certainly my LinkedIn profile. So you can find me, Diane Yether. And as Mark said, it'll say original sales text nerd. Pop in your request that you listen to this podcast, and then I'll know where you came from. But really, if you're looking for sales tax information and what we have to offer, I'd encourage you to visit salestaxinstitute.com. We have yettertax.com as our consulting business, but really most of our content and resources that we make available. And everything out there is free. Our courses you do pay for, but all the resources, white papers, news and tips, charts, all kinds of things like that are all available for free. So I'd encourage people to go there. Perfect. Salestaxinstitute.com. Beautiful. And we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, so you can find us out there on social channels too. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much. This really has been wonderful. I've appreciated you sharing your time. Thank you for the opportunity, Mark. And I hope it helps others see that sales tax really is a fabulous career option. And if people have questions about a career in sales tax, please reach out to me because I'm always happy to talk to people if they have questions about that. Well, that was our guest for today, Diane Yetter, the original sales tax nerd from the Sales Tax Institute. I enjoy this story from several aspects. Number one, we've had self-employed accountants that have a niche on the program before, and we've certainly had a few sales tax specialists on the program before as well. And we've had several trainers, actually. That's a fairly common area for accountants to get involved in. But I love that she's combined all three, training, the niche of sales tax, and then owning her own practice and really just just super niched that down into a thriving business. She's certainly the subject matter expert in the field, and you can tell she really enjoys what she does, and she's very successful in it. That's very admirable. I just love stories like that. I really appreciate that Diane spent her time to do this podcast. Time is money, as they say. And I really appreciate that that she invested the time with us to share her story with you. Well, that wraps it up for this week. As always, if there's anything I can do for your own career, please reach out to me. Give me a call or shoot me an email or the most easy thing is to send me a message through LinkedIn. If you search for Mark Goldman CPA, I'll pop right up. I'm always happy to help in any way that I can. Well, thank you again for joining us and we'll see you all next week. After all, this is Where Accountants Go. Where Accountants Go.